missing connection to science night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another edition of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and with me, as always, is Steffi. Hey. And Jason. Hello. Tonight, we're going to have co-host catch-up, talk about advocating for science, carbon capture, and a twisted hunk of fusion metal called the Stellarator. So let's get into it. Well, if you follow the show on social media, which you all should be doing... You saw that for an extremely brief amount of time, all three members of this august podcast enterprise were in Washington, D.C., and it was really great to see the two of you in person. Like, turns out we all have legs. But that's not the reason we were all in this nation's capital. So why don't we talk about the things that all brought us to D.C.? Jason, what were, what were you doing in D.C.? You were doing important stuff, right? I was there for the cherry blossoms. Oh, a lot of people were there for the cherry blossoms. Like so many. So many people. Oh my goodness. And there was also uh, a conference that I was attending, the American Association for Anatomy, the annual conference. Um, It was the first time that they were on their own in many, many years. Usually they meet with several other societies. And so it was an exciting time for the association. And it was a fantastic meeting. And that's where I ran into you, James. Yeah, I was also there. It was fun to occasionally have coffee and water available for us. Nobody really knew when that was going to happen. That was kind of like the most fun part of the conference was like, when are they going to have the coffee table set up? I'll tell you, the most fun part of my conference was when I knew when I was going to have coffee. And that was when uh, I had coffee with you and Steffi. That was Steffi, why were you in D.C.? Yeah, I was in D.C. to see both of you. Oh, you know, yes. flying in. No. And, and I, the cherry blossoms. And the cherry blossom. And Julia Child's kitchen. So I actually had multiple reasons to be in DC and they all converged within three days, which is actually convenient because then I had to just take one trip out there. Tuesday was the Fusion Advocacy Day, where a lot of researchers from around the US come to DC and we talk to our representatives about fusion energy. I do want to say, No one can use government funds to ask the government for more money. So we didn't use any grant funds for this. So we all kind of travel on our own and talk to representatives, answer their questions about fusion. And then UW Advocacy Day was the next day. It was Day of the Badger, one of our, it was also Day of the Badger, one of our major um, campaigns to fundraise across campus, provide, you know, funds for student scholarships and stuff like that. I got to give a talk to alumni. Um, about fusion research, which is always fun, meeting alumni from UW-Madison from all over the, the U.S. I love them. No matter where you go, you can find badgers, and they're always great. And then I was on a panel talking about federally funded research with a couple of professors from other schools in the state of Wisconsin. So it was fun. It was a lot. I was so tired. You know, it <laughs> reminds me, when you said you, wherever you go, you can always find a badger, Right. It reminded me of that Kurt Vonnegut quote, who is a native Hoosier right here from the state of Indiana. And he said, wherever you go, you find Hoosiers doing interesting things. And my gut reaction to that is, yeah, because they left Indiana for a reason. Yeah. (laughs) But I don't think it's the same for Badgers, right? Right. So a lot of people try and come back to Madison because it's (laughs) we all love living here. Right. I get it. I get it. We're talking about 
Badgers, we're talking about Hoosiers, but I think, you know, everyone thinks of the Big Ten as like this big sports conference, this big football conference, but I think it's speaking to all the academics that are going on in the Big Ten network, of which Steffi is a part. Speaking as an SEC football fan, nobody thinks of the Big Ten because of football. (laughs) Oh, come on. (laughs) Did you all see there was a commercial in my research group during on the Big Ten network? I did. I saw it. It was awesome. Yes. Tell us how yeah. that happened. I just got an email and they were like, the, we'd like to feature your research during a Big Ten basketball game. So we're going to send a video crew. And so I was like, okay. I will say every camera crew that has come into my lab. So we're an engineering lab. We have a lot of heavy equipment. So we have everyone in our team has hard hats. We all have a huge shelf with all of our hard hats on it with our names. They are all black. I bought a hot pink hard hat for myself. <laughs> of course. With, with Deem on it. And every camera crew has come into this lab is like, we need video of you putting on your hot pink hard hat. So there's just hours of B-roll of you putting there's, the hard hat on on different manners. There nice. is so much B-roll of me putting on my hard hat. And when I was one of them, I was filming and they did say smile with your eyes uh. while putting it on. <laughs> Well, did you? <laughs> yes, I did. Excellent. Oh, I mean, we all got really good at that when we were wearing masks, right? So Yeah. yeah. Oh, I got good at it because Tyra Banks taught right. me how to do it. <laughs> that footage is in like a short video promoting like we need new engineering buildings. So. That's cool. Yeah. Seems reasonable. Yeah. I mean, we do. What was it like to walk through the halls of power to talk about UW, fusion, science? I mean, it's pretty fast paced. Because there's, there's several buildings and you have to walk between them and you have meetings scheduled. I don't know if you have all done this before, mm-hmm. but just walking back and forth and not knowing where your next meeting is. Well, we have a good idea, but like, is it going to be in the office? Because you're always meeting right. with staffers. And sometimes these staffers offices, they may have multiple meetings going on at the same time. So they're pressed for time. So you really have to make sure your messages are clear. And also be prepared to have a meeting in a hallway in the corner of a room. Or in the cafeteria. Or the cafeteria, yeah. Right, or just walking to the cafeteria. Sometimes that's all you get, exactly. right? Is I have time to talk to you from on the walk from the office to the cafeteria, and then yeah. I have another meeting in the cafeteria, so what have you got for me? Yeah, but also these offices, um, they have snacks sometimes for their region, mm. region-appropriate snacks. It's true. What did the Wisconsin delegation, this like cheese curd? It depends. Some offices have like, like cranberries are pretty big in Wisconsin. But I think there is one office that I did not go to that has uh, a refrigerator with cheese curds and beer, as one should. When I often go to Capitol Hill to advocate for federal funding for biomedical sciences, oftentimes because I'm in Indiana, we're paired with the delegation from Kentucky. Because, you know, we have similar interests, right? And it's similar geography and and similar sort of states. So I always get to go into the Kentucky, you know, Congress, congressional offices. They have bourbon. They have bourbon, right? They have bourbon in there. And they have like bourbon balls, right? So chocolate with bourbon in them. It's much more interesting than like going into any of the Hoosier delegation offices because there's no bourbon in those. Sometimes they have dogs in the office too. I wish I could have a dog in my office. I feel like I've said I'm from Vermont multiple times so i'm not like doxing myself on the internet but i wonder what i wonder what bernie sanders office has probably like 
off-brand hard candies, right? Maple syrup. Usually it's like something that's manufactured or made in that area. Like characters. Yeah, but he's also he's also Bernie Sanders, so it's going to be okay, like off-brand hard candies. <laughs> They're not going to be off-brand. They're just going to be the kind of brand that my grandparents put out, right? Exactly. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Like all of a sudden there's that blue one in there that nobody really knows. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I would be delighted if I went in there and it was just a bunch of old man hard candies that were in his pocket at some point. And then like change. If it was true to brand, it would be Werther's. Werther's yeah. candies, right? Steffi, you've recently been whipping around the U.S. government. And in the past, Jason, you have also done this. I thought the first story was particularly relevant. So recently, the journal Nature was able to talk to Patrick Valance, former chief science advisor to the U.K. government, about what it takes to convince a politician to care about science. And we've talked about this a fair amount on this show. Check out past episodes with Naomi Harlan-Bacchus, Deviani Singh, and probably others that I can't think of off the top of my head. And, uh, you know, also two-thirds of the hosts on this podcast have firsthand experience, like I said. So what did we think about psychoming to politicians across the pond? Did we see anything that stuck out that we liked? So before we, like, jump into that, I'm just going to, like, say that I picked engineering because it had the most number of technical courses and the least number of, like, speaking, writing, no politics. You have a lot of that in science because we operate mm. in society and you have to communicate to poli- like policymakers, lawmakers. People are going to fund the research. This is very important. So then when you go into advocating for science, having scientists be able to have these skills is super important. And then we can jump into this. <laughs> This story in particular. That was the one thing I kind of didn't like about this story is that he was telling you like the things that you should be able to do. But one of the things that since he was giving advice to scientists, theoretically, he wasn't like you should be trained in how to do this and you should practice on doing this before you're going in and advocating for yourself in front of the government. I guess I wish they would have highlighted that. Maybe they don't have uh, all the center training in the UK and maybe that's something we can branch out and do. So what's interesting is that in the UK, there are several programs where you can earn graduate credentials in science communication. So it's not like they're operating in a silo over there. The advice to learn how to communicate wasn't in there, right? And that was frustrating to me um, as well. I think the biggest issue really, back to your point, Steffi, about politics being intricately involved in science and vice versa, is that you know none of us got into this to become advocates for science. We got in this to do science. But yeah. the further along in our careers we get, the less science we get to do and the more advocating for science, whether it's science with a capital S or whether it's the science in our labs, uh, we have to do. And that was not something I was prepared for. But recognizing that that was the case, I'm so grateful for having the kind of training that I have to be able to talk to anyone about the work that I do in my, in my lab or, or in science in general, because as someone who's been funded by the federal government, I owe it to the taxpayers of the United States to tell them what I'm doing with their money. And some of those taxpayers, some of those taxpayers become our politicians. Some of those politicians are also taxpayers. It's funny how that works. <laughs> and some of those taxpayers become our advocates too. 
Correct. And so if we don't have a, a way to talk about the work that we do that is accessible, and we've talked about this so much on this podcast, if we don't have a way to do that, we have no one to blame but ourselves because we haven't sought the training and haven't put in the requisite practice that it takes to get good at talking about our work with language that is not necessarily the language of our science discipline, but the language of the public. It's not dumbing down the science, it's just making the science accessible. And you have to get really good at that to be able to hit policymakers, because again, you have that such a shortened amount of time to make your point, right? So one of the things that we do when we train scientists is an activity that we call half-life, right? Where we basically take uh, a message and we talk about our science in two minutes, then in one minute, and then in 30 seconds, and then in 15 seconds. And the idea is to learn how to speak smarter about your work, not faster about your work. Um, because you have a time in 15 seconds to make a single point, right? But in two minutes, you can make that point or several points with supporting information and details. Um, and so what is the critical information that you have to pass along? Being able to do that well is something that scientists have to get good at if they're going to be effective when they advocate to the government. I thought it was interesting, though, because when we think of science and nature, the two most prestigious general science publications that are out there, science is US-based and nature is UK-based. And so to have the perspective of the UK government in this article was something that shouldn't have been surprising to me, but was interesting nevertheless, because I don't typically think about how advocacy works in a government structure that's different from the one that we have here. Um, and so I imagine that there are several layers of differences and the nuance there just wasn't captured in this story at all. Yeah, they talked a little bit about like having advocates in every department that could meet back and strategize, but they didn't really talk about the actual day-to-day -day of what it means to be an advocate. What did you think about the anecdote of how this person swayed Boris Johnson to care about climate change by showing him a bunch of factual graphs and data points? That, to me, didn't seem like a super effective path. So, like, as a scientist, we are trained to take the data and interpret the data and come to conclusions. So, even, like, in our own research group, I kind of say, you know, we're working on you distilling those conclusions so you're not just bombarding people with a bunch of data, but you're actually bringing out the what's meaningful here. Really, even myself, like I find data interesting, but when you just see so much of it, you're like, you know, I just give me the cliff notes here because we only have so much time and I need to know what's important so we can make more decisions going down the line. Yeah. And also way more time for podcasting then. <laughs> exactly. Right. Which, of course, is the most important part or, you know, uh, or consulting, right. consulting on all <laughs> sorts of cool, uh, you know. Stuff. Pop culture stuff, right? I mean, that's the best part of, uh, of the job. But your point, Steffi, underscores the other side of this. And that is, um, you know, you can give people a bunch of data, but we know that that doesn't help make people make better decisions, right? We call that the information deficit model. We know it does not work. Um, if it worked, you'd be able to convince people to do all sorts of stuff. For example, I know what it takes to be healthy right? To have a healthy diet, to exercise, uh, to, you know, slim down if I wanted to. I know all of the things that I need to do, but I can find every possible reason not to do that. 
Yeah, it's called cheese curds. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and there are so many different types of cheese curds that uh, <laughs> that's all the reasons you need, right? And you got a real Philly hoagie shop like right in Indianapolis. We do, we too. do, it's, right, exactly. And I mean, over. we do, Indiana is the, you know, the state food is the fried pork tenderloin. I've never had one because it looks vile to me, but that's basically sums up the cuisine in this part of the country. And so I know all the things I need to do to lose weight if I wanted to, but I don't do them, right? Same thing, you know, you give people all the information they need about vaccines and safety, but that's not going to help them make the decision to get a vaccine. Instead, there's a researcher actually at Yale named Dan Cahan who's looked at this. His data show that opinions are formed at least as much by the company that you keep than by uh, the information that you have. For example, if Steffi tells me that there's something I need to do about fusion, right, to make this world better, I'm going to absolutely listen to her, whether or not she's right. I suspect that she's going to be right. She's always right. <laughs> but because I trust what she has to say, because she has developed a reputation in my mind for being someone who can be trusted, um, and rightfully so, I'm going to listen to her and I'm not even going to question what's going on. Right. And that's how millions of people can be convinced that, you know, COVID vaccines don't work or that you shouldn't get a, a flu vaccine or that climate change isn't real. It's all about the company that you keep. And so I was really, really disappointed in the perspective of this article because it didn't talk about the importance of learning how to communicate science. You can't just throw a bunch of information at people yeah. who aren't used to looking at that information, As your, to your point, Steffi. But even more than that, we know that throwing information at people doesn't help them make better decisions. So why would you even do that? Why wouldn't you find a way to message better, right? To, to use an effective communication strategy, one that you know can work as opposed to one that we know absolutely does not work. I liked the take that science is global, especially from his perspective, the UK was becoming more isolationist in the kind of, in the wake of Brexit. Uh, he was saying that science is global, so science advocates need to be thinking globally rather than with a post-Brexit mindset. And I also liked the kind of the end takeaway, the the stinger, if you will, that you have failed to advocate for your science if you haven't if you have not been understood, not if the person's mind changed or not, it's whether or not your takeaways were understood. It seems like a self-fulfilling prophecy here though, right? A failure, because we know that just throwing data at people who are not used to seeing data thrown at them, right, is not effective. And so they will not be understood. So if you're gonna measure yourself against that criterion, right, you've set yourself up to fail. So is this going to be the first Science Night published article in Nature? Is our rebuttal? <laughs> yeah, we'll just like not. respond with the link to the podcast. Yeah, but we probably need to change our uh, our podcast name to Nature Night, or they're not going to publish it. <laughs> oh yeah, this is what we do. We try to get published in Science with this article, and we there can have like a big a big journal showdown. Um. So I did like this part, this quote where they say the l louder the voices, the lower the evidence base. And so the example they gave was during COVID, the things that became the most contentious and where people had extremely strong views and policy opinions were the ones where the evidence base was the weakest. Yeah, that just totally checks out, right? I mean, I think it goes back to the information deficit model, right? Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. doesn't matter if there's no weak basis yeah. for it. If, if everyone in your family is telling you that's the way to do it. Let's take a minute 
hear a message from another podcast that I think you'll enjoy, and come back and see if we can take our own advice and communicate some science to the people of the world. Hi, friends. Cameron here. I host a bi-weekly podcast called Nature is Gay that explores themes of sex and sexuality and gender expression across the natural world. We talk about pseudocopulation and sociosexual behaviors, asexual reproduction in plants and animals and fungi and every little thing in between. It's a great time. I'm a little biased, but I think you should check it out. That's Nature is Gay, available wherever you get podcasts. We're back, and we're going to talk about carbon. So carbon capture has been in the news a fair amount recently, with President Biden and Prime Minister Sunak showing a willingness to increase funding and research and implementation. There's also been some new designs that have made the process cheaper, but rather than like covering these specific news articles, I think I just want to kind of talk about carbon capture. Feels like it's being marketed at this this like hot new thing that's going to allow us to just keep like burning coal and oil and stuff for a real long time. So, what do we think about carbon capture and our impending climate catastrophe? Better late than never. Yeah, that's true. I think things are so bad that we're capturing carbon and looking into things like solar geoengineering. That's kind of scary. All this stuff. Yeah, it's it's frightening because like, what are we doing? We're devising ways to capture carbon while simultaneously cutting down the rainforests that are capturing carbon. Right. I just don't understand it. It's insane. Yeah. And it's getting worse and worse and worse every year. But hey, you know, not to be a fatalist, we should be proud of our species because we have actually lasted way longer than the average mammalian species last on this planet. And so yeah. we had a good run. That's right. You hear violins playing in the background. That's right. <laughs> it's fun while it lasted. Yeah. I guess there's something to be said about having this be like a portion, maybe even a small portion of the solution to our current climate change situation. But all of the news that's been like spiraling around this more really makes it seem like, oh, we don't have to do any of this other stuff now. We can right. just capture carbon and put it in mines. I don't know. There's a limit to what this technology can achieve, right? So I think that's what makes me worried is that climate change is rapidly accelerating and we have a variety of different technologies we can use. Some is, you know, carbon cap capturing, clean energy and ramping those up. But we kind of needed all of it. Mm -hmm. And I'm mm -hmm. worried just the way things are funded and priorities that if you pick and choose the carbon capture and while well, you're not also accelerating new technologies, like that could get us in trouble. That's like the sad thing of the entire way that fun science is, is funded and kind of done. This is a cool breakthrough. This is like a cool science story that we could be talking about. If like the first thing that comes to our mind isn't like, like, well, I wonder where these dollars are going to be coming from and what's not going to get funded because of this new thing by 
two two very large governments. We can tell everybody what will what will still be funded, right? And that's defense. Oh, yeah, <laughs> right. That's true. Our defense budget. Why climate change is not a bigger part of the defense budget portfolio, I will never understand. The Joint Chiefs of Staff have acknowledged that climate change is one of the most significant threats to U.S. security. Yep. Yet we're not devoting enough of our budget to fighting this, right? So, Steffi, I agree with you. We're going to start to pick and choose what we can and can't fund, right? And we're going to see things like, oh, well, we're capturing carbon now, so we don't need to reduce the amount of carbon we're putting out because right. we're capturing, right? Yep. And so that's an opportunity then to start drilling for more oil, right? And you can see the headlines are going to write themselves in this country. And when this, when you have a country that controls so much of the attitudes toward climate change worldwide, turning a blind eye to things again, again, right? I mean, that's the thing. It's not like this is the first time we're going to do this and reverse course. Um, but you can see the writing on the wall. And that's what scares me too. And if you're thinking like, oh, these are just three people on the internet talking about science, why do I have to take their word for it? You should look at who is talking about carbon capture as a means to offsetting climate change. What I've seen other than this podcast when it goes out and the news stories that we're talking about like government investment where BP and Exxon were real excited about carbon capture technology in their 30-second Super Bowl ads that had, like, grass growing in the background. Did anyone tell them that carbon capture doesn't mean drilling for more carbon? Yeah, <laughs> that's where they'll get off. Like, sorry, we're out. Uh -huh. <laughs> How about we talk about something that could provide a, a fun palate-cleansing alternative to talking about doom and gloom with carbon capture? And... Move on to our favorite topic, other than Philadelphia or Kansas City sports, the fusion energy. This should be like a segment in the podcast at this point. Yeah, every every episode, needs... we're going to talk about fusion energy. What's going on so, in fusion? Yeah. Ooh, we should call and it the fusion confusion. Fusion fun times. Ooh, that's better. Fu no, fusion confusion sounds no, like... No, we're going to oh, clear you know, up the fusion confusion. There you go. I got... Well, or there, it works two ways because Steffi is going to clear up our confusion about fusion. Yes, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. <laughs> there you go. Right. Yeah. So this segment is now called Dr. Deem clears up the fusion confusion. <laughs> there we go. But just like Stanley said, Every episode could be somebody's first. So if this is your first podcast episode of this podcast, welcome. You probably don't know that we're really, really into fusion here. You're probably also a little more confused than you should be about the nine inch snail shirts, but stay with us. Basically, if there's fusion news, we're probably going to talk about it. And that leads us to our next story where Type 1 Energy, a private company formed by researchers from the University of Wisconsin and two other institutes, I don't know, have gotten a bunch of money recently to create a commercial fusion reactor using a Stellarator design. And now I've come to learn enough about fusion energy to realize how little I know about fusion energy. And I'm going to do the right thing and turn this ship over to Dr. Stephanie Deem, 
fusion scientist, not James Reed, known internet dummy. <laughs> okay. So I'm just jumping in Do after it. I just processed the words that came out of your mouth. <laughs> okay. There's a couple ways to achieve fusion conditions here on Earth. Magnets, lasers. So the big breakthrough that happened in 2022 where they reached break-even or ignition conditions, that was by focusing laser beams on a small pellet of fuel. One of the most studied ways is through magnetic confinement, where we create a magnetic bottle to confine the hot fuel for fusion. It is about 100 to 200 million degrees hot. So. You have to be creative, which is why we use magnets. These magnetic bottles, when it's in a donut shape, it's called a tokamak, and it relies on this delicate balance of magnetic pressure from that magnetic bottle, balancing the pressure of the fuel for fusion. When it's so hot, it's in the plasma state, the fourth state of matter, okay? Balancing plasma pressure to magnetic pressure. So this is a little bit different. When you're running with a tokamak, some of the fuel actually creates its own magnetic field to balance out that pressure balance. It becomes somewhat of a physics challenge because you have to have the fuel at the right temperature and running it, you, have, you actually create, generate a current in it like you do in a wire, you generate it in the fuel to help make its own magnetic bottle complete. Compare that to a Stellarator, which is this, what this company is doing. They are using superconducting coils. Um, that's why they're partnering with Commonwealth Fusion Systems, an MIT spin-off company, to make a more compact Stellarator configuration. What a Stellarator does is it trades that physics challenge of a tokamak for more of an engineering challenge, which is why when you see the pictures, it looks like a kind of a twisty um, caterpillar-like shape, or to take the title from one of these articles, a twisted reactor from hell. I don't know. I don't know why. Got, they got used to get it, clicks. But when I saw that title, I just started laughing. Yeah, <laughs> listener. Just so you know, I definitely chose that particular article because of the Solely title, the and name. I knew that it would make Steffi laugh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So it, it's a much more complex shape, as you can see from the picture, to actually manufacture, and that's because you don't have to drive current in the fuel to help make its own confining magnetic bottle. You're actually making something that's more hard to engineer, so you're not having to deal with those physics challenges. Do I still have you? Yeah. Yeah, you have me still. Okay. So it's more complex. More complex to build. Tokamak. Right. Um that has been kind of why tokamaks have advanced. We've studied tokamaks more than we have stellarators just because they're easier to build a tokamak. And so we can, we're dealing with the physics challenges. The U.S. was actually building a large-scale stellarator, and it, the project was cut because they went over budget for the engineering part of the bill to actually wind those coils in those shapes because it had to be done by hand, and it takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm. So, so it's like our it's like artisanal fusion. It's artisanal. Actually, all all fusion right now because it's all handmade. It's bespoke artisanal okay, fusion. Okay, sure. Yeah, so. I love it. Love it. <laughs> it's gonna go great in Brooklyn. Right. <laughs> um, Everyone who runs a tokamak has to have a full beard. 
Oh, I look like a hipster. Is that yeah. is that a is that a safety concern? What does EHS think about that? <laughs> it's fine as long as you cover it up when you go inside the vacuum environment when you're cleaning it. Nice. Very Clean good, afterwards. Very good. So I mentioned, you know, projects have been cut because Stellarators, they've gone over budget, just frankly building them. But now we are at this really unique time, moment in time, because we have high temperature superconducting magnetic coils, so we can actually build them more compact. One of the private companies is actually looking at making this in like a, a tape form, so it's easier to wind instead of like bending something that's infinitely harder, like the low temperature superconducting magnets. The other thing is we have advanced and additive manufacturing is great right now. So you can actually build parts through that, where before you had to hand machine them, right? Now we can cut costs that way, make it more compact because of the superconducting coil technology. The other thing is high-performance computing. So they have to optimize the shape, the magnetic bottle, before they actually build it. And so now we have high-performance computing at the level that we can actually run simulations just faster and more large scale and more advanced to include more physics. I, I love what you're talking about when as soon as you said that they're kind of making these coils into tape, I immediately was like, this is going to be a f- uh, like a fusion generating thing covered in duct tape. Uh, which... <laughs> Hopefully hot pink duct tape is in there too. I was just going to say, you know, you've been you've been talking about how there is a huge... A huge deficiency of hot pink duct tape in fusion energy right now. Is it because this type one energy has been hoarding all of the hot pink duct tape? I'll go I'll go ask them later today. Make sure you record. (laughs) (laughs) I will also ask them what the name of their device is, because I at one point they were they were mentioning Starblazer and I got really excited because I love that name. Where speaking of fun names, where does Stellarator come from? The name Stellarator refers to the possibility of harnessing the power source of the stars, such as the sun. There we go. It's right on on the nose, I guess, right? I love how they just had to add in the end, such as the sun. You know, (laughs) well, to be honest, though, not, I mean, when you're, when we talk to the, communicate to the public. Yeah, no, um, right. We say, you know, the process that fuels the sun and the stars because the sun is more personable. Yeah, for like, sure. I totally get everyone, it. We we interact with the sun all the time. Yeah. The other stars are gorgeous, but like our sun gives us life. So yeah. Yep. It's so hot right now. The sun. It is. It is pretty hot. But yeah, the whole concept of the Stellarator was invented by Lyman Spitzer of Princeton University. So some of the early ones that they studied there at the Princeton Plasma Physics Laboratory are still in the lobby. If you want to see them and go visit, you can see them. Oh, so we're talking like desk desktop fusion at this point. I mean, I I know you're talking about prototypes and and experiments, but the one that they're how, building or the one in the fifties? No, 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 the lobby, the lobby, the fifties. Oh, those the, were like large, proof of concept, very large tables. Okay, it's like conference tables. I kind of want to go and see this like <laughs> very fifties version, like retro futuristic version of a Stellarator model on a coffee table. Um, I bet it is as retro as I want it to be. It is, because so they used what they had on hand back then, and it was like Pyrex tube, glass tubes, and then they would try and wind coils around them, and they were putting like, 
enough current to get like two Teslas. The and and a magnetic field in two Teslas is like um about what an MRI machine has right now. MRI machines are like 1.5 two Teslas. Um, some of the ones were much lower fields, but when you get to that high field and you don't have the magnets like strapped down, like you don't get the best quality magnetic field profile. We'll just we'll just leave it at that. Anyway, going back to present day. I know. <laughs> Sorry, I went on a tangent. <laughs> We love tangents here. Tangents sell t-shirts. That's my motto. I, I'm just really excited because a lot of the private companies that have been popping up, you know, there's been so many. I think there's 35 right now. Um, there's been $5 billion from the private sector that have been invested in these startup companies. And a lot of them, you know, the, the major ones have been invested in tokamak configurations, compact tokamaks, high field tokamaks, um, or just did different alternative configurations and we were all hoping that there would be a Stellarator one just because you can take advantage of all the advances in engineering and computing to actually realize something. So I'm, I'm really excited. Sounds like there's a movie in the making, how Stellarator got its groove back. There we got it. We got it. <laughs> For this one, there, the article mentions there's several investors, one of them being Breakthrough Energy Ventures. They've also funded... Commonwealth Fusion Systems, you know, the one of the companies building the largest one, and then Zap Energy is another one that they funded. So we can we can kind of like play off our carbon capture, not as fun talk about the bright future of fusion energy. What we really really need is a way to test materials to make sure they can withstand the harsh fusion environment. What we're looking at is getting that materials testing and development program up and running. I think, I think when we see more advancement in that, that'll be great. What's a good resource that people could go to look at, you know, if they just wanted to get the state of U.S. fusion energy? Yeah, you can head over to usfusionenergy.org. Look at that. <laughs> there you go. Who knew? You had that right at the ready. I know. It's a great website. Man. And you should see their art. It's great. It is. It is. You've come to the end of another episode of the Science Night Podcast, but we got more coming your way, so be sure to follow us on social media. If you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter at James underscore Reed3, where I'm still waiting on that first Phillies win of the season. Maybe it'll happen. Who knows? You can follow me on Twitter at Steffi Deem. And then on Instagram at Starshipin. And Jason, where can everybody follow you? You can find me on Twitter at OregonJM. Just a shout out to the Royals real quick who got their first W yesterday. Yeah, everyone's, every, everyone's getting that first W. Owen162 is my, my prediction. Anyway, follow the show at SciComPod on Twitter. And you can visit our home on the web at SciNight.com for links to all of our social media, including our newly revived YouTube page, which I continually upload one new episode a day until we catch up to season three. You can find all our past episodes, links to the stories we talk about and the people we talk to, and our merch. There is a lot to see, and you can see it all at SciNight.com. We will be back in two weeks with a new episode, but until then, have a great night.
The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz. Did I, did I say something wrong? Steffi, you look like I said the wrong story. No, I just noticed that I have 200 unread messages on my phone. <laughs> 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 <laughs>